Peace Building Podcast. My name is Susan Coleman. I'm a global coach, mediator, and the host of this podcast. Join me as I interview today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Today, I have a really interesting guest named uh, Jim Zimmerman. I'll tell you about him in a second. Uh, But I wanted to say a little bit about uh, how I got to know Jim, and that's because I've been working with NASA, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration for the United States, for over 15 years, doing a training segment um, two times a year in international intercultural negotiations. The program has been part of their of NASA's International Project Management Training Program um, that's for any of their people and partners that are working on space projects with international partners. And it focuses on issues and opportunities about uh, collaboration in space and space projects. So in the beginning, I think the program was really just for NASA folks. Then over the years, and I, le- I believe largely because of Jim Zimmerman, um, and I know with some input from me and some others, NASA invited many of its international partners into the training so that they could learn live together. I, I know for myself, I think it's always better when you're working diversity or intercultural issues uh, to have the diversity represented right live in the room makes for far better learning and dialogue as there's real feedback in the moment. So in those programs, we've done negotiation simulations and feedback and learning about that process. Anyway, um, about five years ago, I really got to know Jim better because I had to create a new case simulation, a negotiation case simulation for the course. And Jim and I created uh, something called Mars Sample Return, a fictitious case about collaboration among space agencies to bring back samples from Mars. Mars is, of course, very large on the space agenda these days. Um, It was a lot of fun working with Jim, and we've been, I think, friends ever since. Um, So one of the things I most like working um, with NASA and partners uh, about, um, the partners have generally involved Japanese, Canadians, European partners, Latin Americans, Australians, and I think Jim will talk more about this, is, is just the image of the International Space Station up there above all of us. Um, It always kind of gives me the chills. It's probably the best metaphor out there for the potentials for the exponential creativity and generativity that can come from international cooperation. Uh, I also noticed this year that the Peace Building Alliance, um, their annual conference, which I unfortunately had to miss because I was in South Sudan, keynoted Administrator Charlie Bolden, the head of NASA, And I'm going to include in the show notes for this interview a transcript of Bolden's remarks as they will, like Jim's interview here today, speak to the power of space exploration to bring us together on the planet. Um, For me, like so many others, the images in 1960, I believe in 1968, that came from the Apollo mission uh, when I think it was the first view of Earth that we all, we humans all had, were, were so profound and transformative. 
um, you know, the image of our home, the impact of gaining perspective from afar on that beautiful blue dot in space, the power of seeing how small it is, how gorgeous it is, how fragile it is, and how totally dependent we humans are on it and how crazy. From that perspective, it seems to be engaged uh, with the amount of deadly conflict that we are. I, I now regularly, uh, you know, in, my, in many of my consulting projects, I now regularly use other images um, from the Voyager mission that have shown the Earth from the farthest known reaches of space. Uh, I think the image that Carl Sagan used that simply had an arrow pointing to a tiny little dot that says, you are here. Uh, I really like using that because uh, other than the, the space folks, which of course know that image immediately when I put it up, all my other clients don't really know what it is. And it's really great for you know keeping things in perspective when there's high drama in the room, high drama and conflict in the room, just to say like, okay, folks, just let's just keep it in perspective about where we all are. Okay, so I want to tell you a little bit about James Zimmerman or Jim Zimmerman, as he is mostly most I think known by all of us. I don't know. Um, he is president of the International Space Services Inc., which he founded in 1997. He also serves as past president of the International Aeronautic Federation, which has more than 300 member organizations in more than 60 countries. He has more than 35 years of international space and science program and international cooperation experience. And he's particularly familiar with space program and policy developments in the United States and Europe, where he served as NASA's European representative for 12 years. He's been responsible for negotiating NASA's joint projects with space agencies in Africa, the Americas, Asia, and Europe, and uh, in um, other things. I'm looking at this in a very interesting bio, which, of course, I'm going to put up on the website. Um, he, and, it, and, I, and I encourage you to look at it. It's, it's rich and deep with a tremendous amount of experience. He has an MA from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, I also went to the Kennedy School of Government, like me, um, and uh, he was twice awarded the NASA's Exceptional Service Medal. In addition, he received the European Space Agency's International Space Station Award, interested in what that is, and the German Space Agency's International Cooperation Award. He also received the American Astronautical Society's Award for the Advancement of International Cooperation. So... Jim, welcome. Thank you for being on the Peace Building Podcast. Really appreciate uh, having you here and that you are giving your time to the listeners. I'm sure they're going to be super interested in just hearing somebody who works and has worked with NASA. You know? <laughs> Great. Thank you, Susan. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to talking to you and your listeners. Yeah. So as you listen to that, you know, I always like asking people uh, just because, of course, you're this, uh, you know, you have this, ex uh, like, stellar background, professional background, and then you're just a human being like the rest of us. Right. And, and uh, it's always interesting to think, have you reflected, are there any... As you listen to this and you think about yourself and, you know, the amount of work you've done on international cooperation, uh, anything that uh, comes to mind in terms of seeds that got planted in you that uh, either in your childhood or earlier career that have brought you to where you are today? Yeah. Well, I think um, probably um, 
reflecting on that, the, the biggest thing is, is luck, <laughs> serendipitous experiences over the years. I grew up in Wisconsin in the central part of the U.S., really had no, um, in my early years, no sense of international or space uh, activities in my future. My biggest trip, I guess, when I was about 12 was uh, to Indiana with my parents. And, uh, you know, that was a that was an amazing trip for me. But I was fortunate in going to uh, a university that had a lot of international programs. And uh, um, that very quickly became an interest of mine. So I ended up studying in Finland and Austria and Italy um, and uh, did the first year of my graduate studies also in Italy. So. It was a um, really a unique opportunity for me, and and uh, then the the next and and very fortunate thing was as I was completing graduate studies, I was really looking at what my career might be. Um, considered working for the diplomatic service, I actually had a, a proposal to do that, but uh, at the same time, I'd become intrigued in graduate school with the intersection of science and international cooperation. At the time, I was working on um, ocean and oceanographic research. And uh, I realized that science was a very unique area to facilitate inter- international cooperation. And uh, fortunately for me, I had a chance to, uh, to begin my work at NASA. Um, and uh, I, I found that very, very fascinating. NASA really is a case study in international cooperation, which is one of the things I'd like to talk about today. So it, that so was me, a great opportunity for me. Let me ask you, why is, <laughs> why is science such a unique or, or a, a good environment for international cooperation? I think because um, the, <clears throat> the challenges of science transcend national boundaries. Um, because the, um, the scientists and engineers who work on scientific programs um, really all work from a, from a common framework, a common set of challenges, common technology uh, basis, uh, common, uh, a, a common set of words and concepts. And, and so they, they've recognized uh, over the years <clears throat> that to be successful in those activities, it's really important to share and to collaborate. It's kind of like math being the, the language, <coughs> right, that I remember, I think Carl Sagan talking about that math would be the language that would be used to communicate with extraterrestrials because, right, something like... Indeed, indeed. I mean, uh, it, is a, it is really a common language. And, and uh, um, <clears throat> in oceanography, where I began, really, we're dealing with um, um, oceans around the world that touch many countries. Uh, no one really owns the oceans. And, uh, Although to, they'd like to think so, right? <laughs> yeah, some people try to control parts of them. But yeah. uh, essentially, most countries, uh, whether they, uh, they border on an ocean or they're landlocked, realize that, uh, that oceans are, um, are a shared resource that we all need to uh, benefit from, nourish, and protect. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and it makes sense to me that you come from Wisconsin. I don't think I knew that about you, but Jim, like many of the people I interview that have done some really amazing things, is is, is a very humble soul, and uh, yeah, we'll always talk about the we versus the I, yeah. and um, so I'm sure you'll hear that in, in what he has to say today. So what what would you like to talk about today? <clears throat> Well, I, I'd like to, um, to, to focus on uh, really two things, um, and it really is um, focusing on we because I think that's much more relevant to, um, to the listeners of your podcast and to hear a, 
a unique individual story. Um, so I, I'd like to um, <clears throat> to bring in my experiences through through the space program of the United States and its partners around the world. Um, I'd like to focus a little bit on human spaceflight and the space station that you mentioned. And then I'd like to shift from that to a, a global organization that I was privileged to lead over the years, the International Astronautical Federation, which is really working to promote space and space collaboration. The two are very much interrelated, but I think the story for for those who are perhaps less familiar with space, space activities and space cooperation, the story really begins with, in a sense, the history of, of space activities and space collaboration around the world. Wonderful. That sounds fabulous. And, you know, not, not to intimidate you or anything, but, you know, these kind of comments can, can – somebody could be listening in some far-off place and it could totally impact their career choice, Jim. I'm just telling you. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. I, I, okay. uh, I, would, I would consider that a great success right? of right. our uh, discussion. Yeah. So, first of all, I mean, space is a, is, is a relatively new phenomenon. Space research, space exploration is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, in the history of civilization in countries such as the United States, it began in in the fifties um, with the uh, the Cold War. I won't recite all that history, but uh, but many people uh, will remember Sputnik and uh, um, and the early successes of the Soviet Union in space. Um, the U.S. rose to that challenge as well as did a number of other countries and began their programs. Um, the focus I would like to take um, is on the human spaceflight program, but in just pointing out the um, uh, the nurture, the, the seeds that nurtured um, space activities were really not collaboration, not at all. They were very political. Um, Russia wanted to uh, show that it was the most powerful nation in the world um, under uh, the Soviet leadership of the time. The U.S. wanted to demonstrate that the U.S. was equally powerful and that it had objectives um, beyond those uh, um, that Russia had that were non-military. Um, so it was a, a very competitive environment. Um, Within that competition, there were also economic and technological challenges that each each of the uh, countries involved in space were pursuing. And by the way, it was not uniquely a U.S.-Soviet um, set of activities. Um, Europe became very active in space early on. Japan did. Um, China began a space program. India began a space program. All so, around the same period of time? Uh, in the same general period of time, okay. um, in the uh, really, if not in the late 50s, in the 60s. Okay. Um, most of these countries had activities in space. Not all of them had human spaceflight programs, but almost all of them had activities in space. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, the most visible programs involved human spaceflight. Um, Yuri Gagarin flew for the first time into space, uh, a Russian, in 1961. He was followed very quickly by an American, Alan Shepard, um, and uh, a year later in 62 by John Glenn, who circled the Earth for the first time as an American, which was a huge achievement for the United States. All of this had to do with prestige. Right. Um, the right stuff. The right stuff and, <laughs> and uh, showing that, that uh, for the Americans uh, and the countries that collaborated with America, that, that our um, economy, our um, political system um, was a system that could produce amazing results. Um, and on the other hand, for the Russians and the Soviets who were leading Russia at the time, that their political system and their economy could also produce right. results. The, the main human spaceflight challenge in the U.S. was focused on the Apollo program, which led to the moon landing. 
Um, Russia uh, also had similar programs and uh, was very active. It wasn't as successful as the U.S. was in that time period, but it nevertheless had some unique um, successes in space as well. Um, after Apollo, the U.S. Uh, briefly had a small space station called Skylab that flew with some of the Apollo oh, astronauts. Yeah. Yeah. But the U.S. really— So that was a manned—that was, was a manned, manned space was station. manned labor laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, but the U.S. really at that point began to look beyond the—since um, it had— gone to the moon successfully. The U.S. began to look beyond what that was and what it could be. Um, obviously, some people questioned the value of investing in space. Um, but the U.S. did decide to begin a, uh, a next generation, what was then called a post-Apollo program, that led to the construction of something called the Space Shuttle which many people listening to this podcast will remember. Um, and the space shuttle program was different than the Apollo program. And this is where we start talking about collaboration and peace building, because for the first time it involved two partners, Europe and Canada. Um, Europe um, built a laboratory. Canada built a um, mechanical arm, both of which were unique uh, capabilities on the, sh on the uh, shuttle and very much valued by NASA. The laboratory was... In the space, it was a was module that actually fit into the um, into the uh, shuttle. I see. And okay. Allowed scientists to do uh, research. Um, from that grew a new idea called the space station, which emerged in the in the mid '80s. Um, and it was a proposal at that time by the U.S. for the U.S., Europe, Canada, Japan, and Russia to collaborate um, initially, excuse me, it was the US, Europe, Canada, and Japan to collaborate on, uh, on human spaceflight. Russia was not a part of that program. In fact, it was still the competitive era. So Jim, but on this, can you identify, like what were the, what were the things that were pushing towards collaboration and cooperation at that moment? It was still heavily political and, and technological. It was showing the U.S. really wanted to bring um, Canada, Europe, and Japan um, into a, a joint initiative that would allow the Western, so-called Western countries to show that, that they could work peacefully together. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't complete collaboration. And that's perhaps the most interesting point because the U.S. still felt that, um, that it really didn't want to rely 100% on its partners. Um, it wanted the ability with the space station to effectively operate the space station, even if the contributions of Canada, Europe, and Japan were not successful. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, at that time, the mentality was still very heavily focused on, on uh, national programs and technological superiority. There was a reluctance, really, to rely on, on partners. It was a willingness to incorporate them into the program, but a reluctance to rely uniquely on those partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, Russia still wasn't it had its own station at that time, um, and it also had some partners who were working with it, so it wasn't a part of the equation. Um, the negotiations for the station began in the mid-'80s. Um, oh, so wait, let me, let me just get that right. So above us, there were these two space stations circling the planet. One was... was actually one at the time, a oh. Russian, and, <laughs> and, and the, called MIR, M-I-R, or yeah, yeah. For, by the way. And, uh, and the space station wasn't, uh, really wasn't launched until the, the late 90s. Okay. It was still a concept. Okay. Um, so the, the Western um, competitor to the Russian Mir station took a long time to evolve. Okay. Um, the agreement for the space station was signed in 88. 
Um, of course, the, the Berlin Wall came down in 89. Um, things changed rather dramatically um, in Russia in the years following. And by 93, um, the U.S. government and the Russian government agreed that Russia would uh, collaborate on the same project that Canada, Europe, and Japan were. And so, Amazing. Amazing. So the space station program very yeah. quickly became um, a global program, at least yeah. those uh, – those major partners, not the, all of the partners in the world, but the major ones. Um, so that's just the background to, to the collaboration and the negotiation side, because in those early years, first among the Western partners and then with the Russians, the negotiations were incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, each side was trying to make sure that they protected their interests, as negotiators always do, um, but they were very suspect of their partners and the, and the, the mutual benefit they would bring. Um, those negotiations uh, were very difficult to achieve. They did achieve results in the end, but there was considerable skepticism on the value of the program, um, which was still seen largely from political and technological superiority um, perspectives. Over time, however, because it really took um, uh, close to 15 years before the program actually literally got off the ground with the launching of the first elements. Over time, the partners gradually began to get to know each other better um, and began to trust each other. And um, the difference between the space station program of the mid-80s and early 90s and the space station program today is absolutely night and day. Yeah. Um, I won't take you through all that history. We don't have time for it. But what I can tell you today is there's a tremendous respect among the partners for each other, a much better appreciation of the cultural and political and bureaucratic differences they have, and a willingness to trust each other, to mm -hmm. actually help each other when need be. Um, amazing it, progression, really. Amazing. It, it's a yeah. truly amazing progression. Mm -hmm. uh, each of the each of the partners really brings something unique to the table. They're respected for it. They've all grown. Um, certainly the Americans have grown in their appreciation to, to uh, realize that each of the partners brings something unique. Keep in mind that today um, the United States can't send um, astronauts on its own to the space station. All of the astronauts who go to the space station right now go via the Russians. Keep in wow. mind also today that the Russians um, and, the, and the Western countries are not on the best political terms. Yeah. Yet Russia continues to provide that capability without interruption, without difficulty. Um, politics is really set aside. How often are people going back and forth to the space station? So how often is, this, is, is Russia shuttling people every, there? Every, every two to four months wow. there are flights going up and back. Yeah. In addition, Russia is a major, not the only, but a major provider of the cargo services to support the station. Mm -hmm. Literally, if Russia decided to walk away from the partnership today, the program would have to end. Um, over time, that may change because the U.S. is building some pieces. Uh, some of the other partners are as well that will allow more um, independence. But those aren't, although there are political statements sometimes said in one country or another about the ability to maintain uh, um, capabilities without Russia, the fact of the matter is that the, the station is only effective or, or highly effective because of that partnership. And were any one partner to step away from it, it uh, the relationship and the future of the program would be significantly changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So amazing representation of, of the power of interdependence. It, uh, it truly is. Uh, it truly is interdependence. Um, if you think back to the 
The U.S. had two very tragic accidents um, in its uh, human spaceflight program. First, the Challenger accident in uh, in uh, 1986, and then um, secondly, in 2003, the Columbia accident. Columbia was, and the space shuttles at that time, were taking astronauts and supplies to the space station. When Columbia um, exploded over Texas, had, had um, Russia not been willing to step up and supply the space station, it would have had to been deorbited. Yeah. Uh, but the Russians never blinked an eye. Yeah. Um, they they continued to um, to carry on their responsibilities and to take on added responsibilities to ensure the program would survive. So that brings us to today. Yeah. But really, there's a there's another dimension to this, and perhaps one of the most interesting ones is that um, as the space-faring um, countries of the world look ahead. They're really already looking beyond the space station, which is likely to continue to operate. Um, most of the major um, partners in the program have agreed to operate the space station um, for another six years to uh, or actually eight years to 2024. Um, but uh, they're already looking to what what can happen beyond. Um, NASA Administrator Bolden, Bolden probably talked about that in his remarks um, that you referred to earlier. But the challenges beyond take us um, ultimately um, bringing humans to Mars. But there are many, many steps before uh, humans go to Mars. Sadly, uh, I may not be around to see that step of going to Mars, which will <laughs> probably take place 20 or 30 years from now. Uh, or if I am, I probably won't appreciate it as I do. You today. never know. <laughs> you never know. So let's hope. But in any case, um, the, the, the challenges go beyond that because really um, the, the goal of most of the spacefaring countries is to gradually be, begin to move beyond low Earth orbit into an environment. Sorry, beyond. What did you say? Beyond. We call low Earth orbit. And low Earth orbit is the, is the part of the space environment just a few hundred miles above Earth. That's where the space station sits right now. That's where most of the satellites that provide communications and uh, weather forecasting and so forth sit um, in various orbits. Many of them sit in geostationary orbits, um, so they're in over the same part of the Earth um, all the time. But the space station actually, as you know, because you can see it when it passes over Earth in certain times. If how do you see it? If somebody's wanting to see it, how do they know uh, that they're seeing one, it? There, there is, if one wants to Google the um, um, the NASA space station website, um, there actually is an app you can download to your phone um, that will give you the times that the station is passing over. Or you can find it on the website and it passes over periodically. And Very cool. Very permitting, cool. It's possible to see, just mm -hmm. like a planet. It's pretty unique to see a man-made object moving across the sky, but, oh, it, but it is possible to see. But looking beyond the station, um, the partnership, um, which has really been so successful, is starting to look at what are the new challenges. As an, and as I said, the... the the, um, the next challenge is to go beyond. Um, going to Mars is the eventual goal, but there's a one and perhaps several intermediate goals that are also being looked at. And uh, those goals involve uh, the vicinity of the moon, the area around the moon, which um, space engineers and scientists call cis lunar space, C-I-S dash lunar space. Um, and, and that's a, a, an area where one could locate a, um, a station, a habitat, 
one could use it in a sense as a... Um, you mean uh, if things get really bad here. I <laughs> uh, don't think you'll see that happening. This is really more for research and for demonstration purposes where people can, can do um, greater research in, in space outside the close environment of the Earth um, and where they can demonstrate techniques going down to the moon, coming back, um, that will... Um, to, will prepare us uh, skill-wise and technologically to ultimately um, visit Mars. So um, one, of the, one of the plans that the space station partners are beginning to talk about is to develop a habitat, um, a small space station, if you will, that will operate um, around the moon. Um, the other thing that, that uh, makes that uh, set of challenges very interesting, collaboratively very interesting, is that uh, I mentioned earlier that there are many new partners involved in space. That's exactly what I wanted to ask. It's like the progression, yeah, the progression of partners. How's that, yeah. The, the, the progression of partners have, has grown a great deal. Um, and in addition to um, the America, America's partners in Europe, um, France, Germany, Italy, uh, the UK, um, Denmark, the Netherlands, and so forth, who all have active interests in human space flight. Um, there are also, and in addition to Japan and Canada, there are also growing interests in India, in China, and in a number of other countries around the world who may not have plans to develop human spaceflight launching and, uh, and uh, orbital vehicle programs, but who have interest in human spaceflight. Yeah, and, do they, and, and they want to cooperate or they want to do their own thing? There is interest in cooperation because the, the paradigm, if you will, has really shifted from that era in the, in the late 50s and 60s and 70s when, when the nationalism and uh, competition and, and challenges were um, at the forefront to, uh, to an environment when um, the space scientists and engineers and the program managers who support them really realized that, that collaboration is the only way forward. It's not an option, it's a necessity. And why, why is that, Jim? I think, I think it's, it's a number of things. First of all, um, in those early programs, collaboration wasn't really seen as an important objective. Collaboration, uh, although collaboration was written into the, um, the Space Act that created NASA and that uh, set forth uh, the principles of, uh, of the American space program, and collaboration has always been a very important part of what NASA's done. Collaboration, especially in human spaceflight, was, was seen as a nice-to-do thing but not a necessity. Mm -hmm. However, looking, looking at the even more complex programs that we talk about when we talk about venturing beyond low Earth orbit, um, space program people realize they don't, simply don't have the resources, either the financial or the human resources or the technological resources they've developed to do it on their own. And because over these past 30 years, the partners who have collaborated on space and on human spaceflight programs realize for the first time that they've been extraordinarily successful at collaborating. They trust each other. They can work together. And they realize the benefits of it. And they appreciate that, that not only do they want to rely on each other, but frankly, they need to rely on each other. They can't do it alone. So are there are there examples or anything you know in terms of the generative or the, the generative capability of different because these are very different cultures sometimes coming together and I I remember sometimes examples also of like 
you know, the concept of mass, for instance. There was a funny example of how mass doesn't translate across cultures. People have very different concepts of what that is. But, you know, I I mean, I'm a big believer that you get diverse minds together and you can really generate something more interesting. And it's sounding like that's been what has been some of the realization of people in the space industry. It it definitely is. And and obviously, um, the extent that the space programs around the world have been transparent, have been able to share their scientific and engineering results has contributed to that. But I think also the fact that um, not only has the U.S. program grown, but these other programs have, have grown tremendously. Um, as I mentioned, China and India are particularly interesting. China um, flew its first astronaut in a program that it developed on its own in 2003. Um, in the decades since, China's become increasingly active in human spaceflight. Um, it also is very active in other uh, space activities, space applications, Earth observations, telecommunications, and navigation. But China has focused on its human spaceflight program for really for, for national reasons that are associated with demonstrating that China is a major power, inspiring young people in China to be interested in, in science and math and engineering. Um, and so China's program has, has uh, grown to the point where um, they now have regular human spaceflight missions um, where they've developed and successfully um, operated a manned laboratory in space, human tended laboratory in space, and they plan to have their own space station by 2020. Um, India also has plans for human spaceflight. It began its uh, a small human spaceflight program in 2014, and it hopes to uh, become much more active in the coming decade in human spaceflight. But so like China wants to have its own space station, but it also sounds like it's interested in cooperating with existing China- initiatives. Our Chinese friends are very interested in cooperating. They have expressed that interest. They have proposed collaboration programs. China's actually um, begun working with Europe um, and envisions flying a, a European astronaut to the Chinese station sometime in the early 2020s. Um, China's uh, had discussions with other countries. Um, the U.S. in particular, uh, perhaps Japan as well, but the U.S. in particular has been very hesitant to work with China, however. So that's been a a very difficult um, uh, barrier for our American space program friends because uh, they've been restricted by the U.S. Congress from really having any significant um, interactions uh, and, and envisioning any significant collaboration with China. Is that about sharing information, sharing... It the the roots of those uh, restrictions, those congressional restrictions, um, uh, involve a number of factors. They certainly involve concerns over the possible risk of technology transfer and and Chinese misuse of the information. They involve concerns over the nature of the Chinese space program, that it may have some. Um, additional military objectives in addition to the civil ones. And it has concerns, it stems from concerns associated with other um, issues that that American and other um, congressmen from other countries have over China's political system and the lack of uh, 
of freedom and human rights in China. So, uh, so it's politics, a, it's a politics is still there. <laughs> politics is there, and politics in the case of collaboration with China has really um, uh, overridden the ability of the um, scientists and engineers to work together at this point in time. What's your prediction? You think we're going to transcend that ultimately as a planet? My view is we will transcend that. And, and it's only a question of time. And I think we need to transcend it. And I, and I think at the level of individual scientists and engineers, um, the uh, spacefaring people of the world realize that they all face the same challenges. Mm -hmm. And those challenges, the challenges of, of um, getting the math and engineering right, of making sure that they respect the laws of physics um, and that they avoid um, the inevitable human errors that creep into everything we do in life. Um, those challenges are far greater than the political challenges that seem to divide us. So they, they're drawn together. Um, and, I, and I think it's inevitable that the, uh, that the U.S. and for that matter, the other spacefaring countries in the world who haven't worked closely with China will do so. And my my sense from talking to our Chinese friends is that they look forward to that day. Mm -hmm. This isn't a, a question of uh, bridging a gap. It's a question of, of finding the occasion when um, we use space really as a symbol of how um, countries can work peacefully together. That's a very, yeah, very powerful symbol, as, as I think if you look at Bolden's remarks, uh, attest to. And I was going to get to some of the impediments to cooperation, um, and then you've, you've touched on them, and they sound like, you know, they're political. Uh, but then there may be other impediments that you've come across in your, in your uh, career where that, that are worth shedding some light on. Anything that you can think of? Well, there are, there are obviously many impediments, many challenges that you face to cooperation. And um, the first, of course, has to do with making sure that you uh, understand the objectives and goals and that the uh, collaborative initiative you're uh, putting together um, serves the interests, successfully serves the interests of both parties. Um, and that, uh, that hopefully is achieved during the negotiations, so it doesn't always work that way. Um, in addition to that, there are many technological um, challenges that are associated with uh, the very nature of space technology because the same, um, the same capabilities that take satellites and humans into space for peaceful and research purposes can also be used for weapon systems. And so sadly, um, in space, um, the people who are active in space programs always have to be mindful of the fact that not everyone in our wonderful planet um, – has interest in using the technology we're pursuing for peaceful purposes. Yeah, it's a very close alignment. I mean, even when you go on the base at NASA, I mean, you're obviously go you're very close to the Air Force base. You're, it's you know, it's 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 a lot of a lot of former Air Force people work for Na you know, become astronauts, and I don't know, vice versa, but. Yeah, there, there, there is. But I think overall, um, the um, the civil, the the peaceful space space programs uh, in the United States, in Europe, Japan, Canada, um, and for that matter, Russia and China and India are all programs that are pursuing um, uh, really objectives that relate to science to understanding our universe, understanding uh, what's happening in, in this vast universe beyond our own, uh, own small planet, and for that matter, using the technology that they're developing to better understand and, and, and better um, nurture the condition of our own fragile planet. 
So, Jim, what about uh, industry? I, I've certainly been aware of the increased presence of industry in, in the International Project Management course, for instance. Um, any comments about the role of them? And Industry, of course, plays a major role in space. Uh, really, the, the dividing line between what government uh, officials in space and industry officials uh, in space are doing is, is simply a, a pragmatic one. Each country decides um, how active the space agency wants to be in developing and managing the programs and how active industry does. But industry has always been a major player in space. And in the U.S., and for that matter, a number of other countries, it's becoming increasingly active since um, companies are gradually beginning to realize the potential um, of space flight for commercial purposes. While we're talking about industry, let me um, let me turn to kind of the second example that I wanted to mention to you and, and your listeners, because I think that may um, help illustrate um, the uh, the future potential of space. But also it will allow me to talk a little bit about uh, some of my experiences in negotiations and leadership um, on space activities. Um, Sounds wonderful. Yes. Okay, so that involves something called the International Astronautical Federation, um, or IAF. Um, the IAF actually goes back to the very beginnings, uh, even before the beginning of the space age, when a group of, uh, of societies uh, in a few countries around the world um, with uh, visionary people who, who saw the potential of, of uh, sending objects and eventually humans into space got together and formed a little federation of uh, space societies. Um, that group... When, what, when was this? This was... It was in the early 50s, oh, okay. 1951, I believe. Oh, okay. um, and, they, and they met in, in the UK and, and decided that uh, the time had come for those societies to, uh, to band together and uh, at that time simply exchange ideas about spaceflight. Of course, uh, um, not even a decade later, um, spaceflight was a reality, and, and within that same time frame, so was uh, the first flight of humans into space. Um, and the IAF grew from those uh, very modest beginnings of uh, spacefaring societies into an organization, uh, or federation as it's called, that really represented um, all of the space professionals and the space organizations around the world, bringing th them together in one single um, forum. Um, the IF is, a, is an NGO, a non-governmental organization, um, and, and it has members of organizations, not individual members. So um, in this federation today, um, NASA and all of the uh, almost... Uh, 75 space agencies around the world belong, as do almost all of the companies. We were talking about companies earlier. So as, basically everybody. As well as um, most of the space um, professional organizations yeah. and many universities. Yes, okay. basically everybody, although the, the universe is, is a bit larger than the membership, but the membership has grown um, from uh, the uh, at the at the time it was founded, um, a handful to more than three hundred today. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a global organization. Um, it meets um, twice a year, but uh, for a major conference once a year in a different location, and it's governed by a president and a board of directors or bureau. Um, the bureau members represent almost all of the major space-faring uh, um, countries around the world, um, but the major ones usually each have at least one 
um, vice president. Um, the president is elected uh, every two years, and I had the privilege of being elected president uh, back in 2004, and one can serve for two terms, so I served for a second term from 2004 um, until 2008. And um, at the time I took over the IAF, it had a, had a very storied and impressive history, but it was still um, – shall we say, more of an organization that simply brought individuals uh, together once a year to talk about what they'd done. Um, the history that I want to point out is during the Cold War, um, the IF and its annual meetings uh, actually was one of the places where the Soviets and the Americans could meet and talk over a beer or a glass of wine. And um, so they, they did. They chose to use those meetings, those annual meetings, as opportunities for the, the scientists and engineers and program managers to at least get to know each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that history weighed on my mind as I took over in, in president because I, I looked at this organization um, and wondered what, what is the potential of an organization like the IAF? It's an NGO. It certainly doesn't uh, have any status with governments. It, uh, the governments are going to, to do their own collaborative programs. The industry, they're going to pursue their own opportunities. But what I realize is the potential of the IAF really is to, to bring those players together, to provide opportunities for them to get to know each other better, and, and in those limited cases where they can do so, to provide opportunities to collaborate, collaborate on things in common, even if they're simply um, volunteer programs, but nevertheless to bring, uh, to bring the organizations uh, together to focus on things that they're all interested in. Um, so I worked very hard at, at enlarging the organization and focusing on those objectives. Um, I also had to choose... Um, together with my board of directors and, and ultimately with all the membership because major decisions were referred to what's called the General Assembly once a year. Uh, we had to choose uh, sites for future um, uh, international congresses. These congresses really are the major space event each year. Um, in a way, the Global Space Olympics, so a one-week one event when all the players gather to talk about their activities and uh, exchange uh, ideas uh, also to in where have they where has it been held in like and, the last and it's been held years? more or less all over the world but at the at the time that that I was serving it had not yet been held in Africa mm -hmm. and I really felt that Africa was uh, the time had come that uh, that uh, the the world space organizations needed to um, to find a spot in Africa and we were successful to together with our colleagues from South Africa. Um, to have a, uh, an IAC in Cape Town um, that took place in 2012. So I was very, very proud of that. It's the first time we've been. Wonderful, yeah. Um, but each time we would hold a, an IAC, um, uh, the, the, the spot was selected about three years in advance, and then a, a very complicated set of negotiations would occur to try to um, work out the terms and conditions under which the event, um, which actually is a, is a multi-million dollar undertaking, the event would take place. And uh, those negotiations were often rather difficult. Um, and as the principal at the IAF, I led those negotiations with a number of different countries. And I realized, uh, I, I guess, uh, having worked in negotiations for years in space and, uh, and uh, representing NASA and a number of them, 
um, I was quite confident that uh, negotiations were a piece of cake and, and, you know, I could handle this. There was really no difficulty at all. What I realized is I really didn't know very much about negotiations and I certainly didn't know a lot about successful negotiations. Like I said, audience, a, self, a, a humble guy. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I learned, I, th I think my colleagues in India, if they were listening to this podcast, would smile. I learned in particular from the Indians how badly I screwed up. <laughs> But, but we managed, despite, the, despite that, to, to reach a successful conclusion. And I can, you, can you say anything about when you say screwed up? What, what do you mean by that? Because I didn't really learn to listen. I didn't really appreciate. Um, I was much, uh, much too much in the mode of take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. um, there was a dominant hand that the IAC had because once a country was selected, they were expected to do it. Prestige wouldn't allow them to back away. Um, but on the other hand, some of the terms and conditions we were demanding were pretty unreasonable. And I wasn't very creative in listening and trying to understand what the needs of the other party was and trying to, to come up with solutions that would really be successful for both sides. Mm -hmm. Of course, negotiations are always complicated. So um, as you well know, and, and many who have been involved in negotiations realize, you're not just negotiating with the other side of the table. You're negotiating with your own team. Mm -hmm. And in putting on these conferences, there were a lot of challenging negotiations uh, with members of the team who were unwilling to compromise. Yeah, sometimes those are the hardest and in my indeed, experience. Yeah. Indeed, in the space station negotiations back in the, in the late 80s, actually the negotiations within the U.S. government were were probably more difficult in negotiations with the partners because there were those who had other interests who really didn't particularly want to see the program succeed and were making it very difficult for NASA. So they would they, come up with these, you know, take it or leave it kind of ultimatums. Well, they, and then, they would make it difficult for the U.S. to develop a negotiating position that, that would ultimately be palatable to the partners. Yeah. But at my level, working as an individual, as a volunteer president of this uh, global organization, I really learned a lot. I won't take you into all the details, but I learned a lot on the importance to try to understand your partners, to try to listen to them and work with them, um, respect their cultural differences, and ultimately unite, as you would say, and come up with a, a, a successful um, result. I think we were reasonably successful, but if I were doing it today, we'd do it a lot better. Um, the other thing I'd say is that that managing that board of directors, coming up with common decisions, taking, um, trying to really um, elicit um, not just acquiescence, but but uh, genuine support for activities we're doing um, is an art. Uh, again, um, typically a, a type A American will simply um, make a proposal, look around the room and say all in favor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and in, especially in a in a multicultural environment where you uh, your partners that you're working with are a Russian, uh, a European, a Japanese, a Chinese, an Indian, uh, maybe a South American, uh, perhaps another American, and one more European, um, that simply doesn't work. Uh, 
a lot of the discussions need to be done um, beforehand. You need to prepare your partners very carefully, make sure they understand what's at stake and listen and try to accept any concerns they have. But then also you have to take the time to actually allow them to give their contributions during those discussions. Um, that took me uh, pretty much all of the four years I served as president to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's terribly important in international discussions and successful negotiations. So I just point to those two things as experiences I had. I learned a lot. Uh, I would be a lot better president today than I was then. But uh, but fortunately, uh, I survived. And I think the organization, um, despite my mistakes, uh, grew and, and uh, improved in the process. Well, what I'm hearing from you is that you actually really were open to learning as you went. You were you were taking in feedback and then shifting how you were how you're moving forward. I, I definitely was. You know, I definitely was. And I think I, I think we really did succeed in a number of areas. One of the ones that uh, I'm most pleased about is that the uh, and, and this really is part of the building uh, a more peaceful world through space cooperation. Um, uniquely in space, we have a tremendous number of young people, students and young professionals who are interested in both space, either as engineers or scientists, or for that matter, political scientists and historians, um, uh, but also interested in collaboration in international space. Uh, and, um, during the time I, I served as president and in the years since then, the IF has really promoted opportunities for young people to come together, to be part of this community, mm-hmm. even though many of them don't have as much experience as the, the mid-50s engineers and, uh, and uh, scientists who, uh, who have led the organization. Um, many of those young people bring a lot of unique skills and interests and enthusiasm to the activities. And so, very different set of skills around cooperation, is my, in my experience. Just as, I think the Internet age has created a different kind of mentality among millennials and, you know, whatever. I, I can only underscore that. We're, yeah. we're dealing in, in, in an age of social media where young people, where it's natural to, right. to collaborate, to share, uh, and to do so on a global basis. So we encourage those young people to get involved in the activities of the IF. They now have a, a, a wide variety of programs um, for students and young professionals, um, particularly um, during this annual conference. Um, and I'm very proud to say of the, the three to 4,000 people who come to the IACs each year today, more than one-third of them are under 35. Wow, that's um, so it's exciting. A, it's, yeah. a dramatic, it's a dramatic change from the, uh, the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. even the 90s. And, and it's a, uh, I think it really bodes well for the future of uh, the space endeavor and for that matter, space collaboration. Because as we, uh, as we think about it, those young people who are there, they all go out in the evening and, and uh, socialize with each other. They get to know each other on a personal level. And, and those people will be the program managers and leaders of the space programs uh, a decade or two from now. And they won't have to understand that, of course, they'll still have cultural challenges, but they'll, uh, many of those barriers will already be down. They'll right. know each other as friends, they'll right. trust each other, and they'll find a lot easier uh, ways to work together. A lot of seeds being planted that who knows what they're going to blossom into. That know. I look forward to. And, and that, frankly, is one reason why I'm very confident we will, um, um, we will one day uh, take humans to Mars. Yeah. 
So, Jim, we're hitting our witching hour, and uh, and I, just the things that you've shared have been so excellent and interesting. I really, really appreciate it. I, I don't know if you have any any final thoughts, reflections. I mean, you've given so much, but if there's uh, anything other than a goodbye, it's, uh, this is probably <laughs> well, I, the moment. Uh, two quick things. One is on the IF, one other thing that I think is very important is that that as – as was the case back in the 50s and 60s, the IF really is a place where China um, in its activities, as well as India, um, are, are very active and where their programs are very much appreciated. They participate uh, very enthusiastically. And I think it is one of the bridges that, that helps us overcome the, the current political challenges that uh, impede uh, collaboration. I think the IF, it, it has no formal role, but as a multilateral organization, um, interactions with China, participation, discussions with China are allowed, provided they're not providing any um, sensitive information. And those opportunities for the program people uh, of China to get to know their counterparts, not only in the U.S., but in Japan and Europe, um, Canada, um, those are very important. And I, and I think that's a, um, something that's very important to me because I do think that um, it's inevitable that we will be collaborating on future projects uh, in this area of cislunar space first. Um, a decade from now, there probably will be an outpost around the moon. There may well be more settlements on the moon. Um, uh, China will be a part of that. So will the Americas. Uh, so will Europe and, uh, and other parts of Asia. So it's important that we lay the foundations for those activities, and the IF um, plays a very small, but I think a very valuable role in that. Yeah. So it sounds like important uh, third-track diplomacy. <laughs> I, that's a nice way of putting it. Mm, yeah. As far as myself, I don't really have any, any great words of wisdom. I think uh, for me, um, I started at the beginning to say I've been lucky. I've been extraordinarily lucky to uh, – to um, have been a part of this amazing adventure of space and space collaboration. Um, I, I've learned a great deal. Uh, I've certainly learned a great deal about people from, uh, from other parts of the world. I've learned to respect them. Um, I've learned uh, a lot about myself, too, and to know who I am and to appreciate that, uh, that I'm just uh, still a guy from Wisconsin who ended up uh, um, learning a little bit about the world and, and maybe in a very small way helping the world uh, um, be a better place. I think space is, is really a unique place to um, invest in the future and in a peaceful future. I, it's terribly important that we continue to do what we're doing in space because um, our activities in space globally bring out the best in us. They nurture great interest among young people, and uh, it's a very small cost that we uh, that we pay in each of our countries to uh, to learn more about uh, what our place is in the universe and to try to make our our world a little bit better and uh, um, better off for its citizens and uh, always more peaceful. Well, thank you, Jim, so much for your time and for your uh, tremendous experience that you've shared. I really appreciate it and. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I look forward to some of the comments. I'm sure listeners will really appreciate having heard this. Thank you again. Very good. You're welcome. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. 
please email your comments, suggestions, and ideas to Susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join me next time for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level. 